Welcome to Speaking of Grace, the weekly message podcast from the Whole Life Church in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-generational congregation committed to our mission of loving people into a lifelong friendship with God. We are committed to our vision of being a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches each receive a unique message from Jesus. And each of those messages is arranged in the same seven-part pattern. The commission, the revelation, the commendation, the complaint, the correction, the reward, and the call. Jesus begins each message with a commission telling John to write the message to the angel of the specific city. Next is the revelation of Jesus. Jesus gives each city a description of himself that relates to how they need to see him. In the commendation, Jesus affirms what the church is doing well. In the complaint, Jesus explains where they are falling short of God's calling to them. In the correction, Jesus tells the church how to fix the problem they are facing. Jesus then tells them he will personally reward the churches that are victorious. And finally, in each message, Jesus asks the church to listen to what the Spirit is telling them. Though the structure of each message is the same, there are some intriguing variations. For example, there are two churches that Jesus doesn't have a complaint against at all. One of those churches is the Church of Smyrna, a church that was suffering. Well, hello, family. You know, every week when we're going through this uh, series, you can count on us doing the same thing at the beginning of the sermon. We're going to read the scripture together. So I just think it's fun for us as a church to read a message from Jesus to a church. And uh, we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to be thinking about how that message may apply to our church. So let's go ahead and take a look at Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna. And read with me, please. The first and the last who is dead and has come to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. The one who has ear to Oh, you guys sound good. Nice job. You know, location has a lot to do with what you think about. Am I right? When I lived out in Washington State, I didn't think about hurricanes barely at all. Yeah, it's true. I I mean, every once in a while you see in the news that there was a hurricane down in some place called Florida. Whatever. I mean, no, I'm trying to be more compassionate. I mean, but you know what I'm saying, right? 
Then I moved to Nashville and became a little bit more interested in hurricanes because we sometimes would get some rain from them. Still not that much on my radar. What was on my radar was tornadoes. That was on my radar. But can I tell you just last week, living here in Florida, when I saw the news that there was some sort of something forming off the coast of Florida, whoo, I was paying attention. And I hate to say it, but if you're honest, you know it's true. I was like, oh, thank goodness, it's going toward North Carolina. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm an honest guy. I, I, it does, it's, I, I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it. North Carolina is a state I grew up in, so I don't wish them ill. I'm just glad it's not coming my way. <laughs> and let's do think about the folks in North Carolina who had Ophelia uh, join them this morning early. And hopefully, uh, we'll just pray that all is well and, uh, for them. But location kind of has to do with what you think about, right? And I say that because most of us don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about persecution. Okay, I know some of you are like, well, you know what, I mean, there's persecution that happens in the United States, and, and yeah, but kind of there's like persecution, and then there's like persecution, right? Like, I mean, sometimes the persecution that Christians experience in the United States has a lot more to do with them being not nice you know, sometimes when you're mean to people, they persecute you. It happens. And then there's, there's legitimate. I, I have uh, I've had church members. Myself, I've experienced what it's like to sometimes, because of your religious beliefs, not be able to find a, a job because of some of the things you believe. So there, there is that. But then there's the persecution that, that comes with not having a place to live, not being able to eat, torture martyrdom. There's that kind of persecution. And that's the kind of persecution that the church in Smyrna was having to deal with when Jesus' message arrives to them. Now, the name Smyrna means myrrh. And every week we're doing a secret word. And you, if you keep track, at the end, there will be a, a a reward for the victors who have all seven words written down. So you can see up on the screen that there may be a secret word. And I'm, somebody's like, when are you going to be less obvious about the secret word? <laughs> it's coming. The, the word is myrrh, by the way, okay? Um, but just saying, the word myrrh. What does that bring to your mind for some of you? If you think about the life of Jesus, where does myrrh play into it? Yeah, okay, so I hear some things being yelled. So the first thing that might come is the, the wise men, the magi, they bring three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah, and so gifts for a king. And then you maybe jump to the end of Jesus' life when he's dead, and Nicodemus and Joseph and Arimathea show up. They bring 75 pounds, that's a lot, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, to bury Jesus with. And so myrrh was uh, very much used. It's an uh, aromatic resin that comes out of a tree. And it was used uh, to cover up smells. So you can see how that might play into burial. And by the way, today we decided to try to give you a, a full experience. And you may or may not have recognized that the worship center smells a little different today because we actually have the scent of myrrh 
um, we have it being diffused. And it's, it's a very faint because we didn't want to overpower. I know we have some, sometimes people have sensitivities to smell, so we didn't want to crank it too far up. But if you're not sure, if you walk around the back, the dispensers are actually up, up high. And so uh, if you walk in the back, you can be sure to see what's, what myrrh smells like. But the other thing that most people don't think of is there's a third time in Jesus' story where myrrh is used. And this is in the, in the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus is being prepared to be crucified, as he's being laid down on the ground before they nail him to the cross, the soldiers offer him a glass of wine, and it says, Mark says it was mixed with myrrh. Well, that's kind of weird. Why is that? Well, because the ancients believed that myrrh had medicinal uses, and it was a painkiller. And so they mixed myrrh, the painkiller, into this wine. Jesus refused to drink it, but you can kind of understand why they might offer it to somebody who's about to go through something very painful. So, myrrh, a scent that covers up, that can cover up other smells that aren't so pretty. Myrrh, a painkiller to the ancient mind. And so, here is the city of Smyrna. And the interesting thing about Smyrna is that Smyrna has endured a lot of pain in its history. And it has a painful history for Christians. And I want to thank uh, one of our church members, Karen Sproul, who this week emailed me. And she said, I know, I'm sure you're thinking of this. I wasn't. I had, I had no. She, she informed me. See, this is why it's good sometimes to not assume that I know things and just send me an email and let me know. She's like, it's incredible that you're preaching on Smyrna 101 years almost to the day when it was burned to the ground. Yeah, 1922. Uh, there was uh, some conflict happening in that region. And Kamala's force entered into Smyrna and they targeted the Christian population in particular and then some other religious groups as well. And uh, just a lot of horrible things happened over the course of about 11 days that this was going on. And at the end of all of it, or at the very beginning, they, they started burning down the city. And by the time it was done, Smyrna was burnt to the ground in 1922, and it was September of 1922. In fact, you can see that on, the, uh, on this slide behind me. So this is what happened 101 years ago, that Smyrna was burnt completely to the ground. The good news is it's risen up out of the ashes. It is now the modern uh, city of Izmir. It is the third most populated city in Turkey has 4.4 million people living in it today. Um, it is a majority, uh, vast majority Muslim city. However, it is the second largest, has the second largest population of Jewish people in it, in Turkey. Um, and also has a, a small Christian community that is in, in Izmir as well. And so it kind of rose up from the ashes. But what you need to understand is that's not the first time that happened to Smyrna. Smyrna actually had a history of this. Back in 600 BCE, the city was a thriving place and it was conquered by an army that came through and completely burned it to the ground, just completely burned to the ground. And it was vacant for, nearly, for a little over 300 years. Vacant for a little over 300 years, but then it picked itself up out of the ashes and again became a thriving metropolis. And the Romans were actually rather fond of Smyrna. And this guy right here, this good looking guy in marble, his name is Aristide. Aristide was a Roman orator, 
And he liked to say, he was, Smyrna was a favorite place of his. And he said that Smyrna was like the phoenix bird. Phoenix bird that self, you know, burns itself and then comes back, rises up out of its own ashes. And so he likened Smyrna to the phoenix that comes up out of the ashes back to life after being dead. Go ahead and tuck that away in the back of your mind because I'm going to come back to it here in a little bit. But like I said, the Romans were really fond of uh, Smyrna. And the reason was is because Smyrna liked Rome before Rome was, you know, the cool kid on the block. You know what I'm saying? Like before they were the Roman, the world power that dominated everything, Smyrna was like, hey, we're with you. And so the Romans always respected that. They're like, yeah, before, you know, before we were awesome, you were like, you were with us. So you didn't, you weren't like on the bandwagon, you know, like when an NFL team or basketball team wins a championship and suddenly everybody's always been a fan of theirs. You know what I'm talking about? No, it's like me, a Washington Commanders fan, admitting it. I am a Washington Commanders fan. I have had no joy and I probably will, although we're off to a good start. Anyway, the sidebar, the point is they were fans of a losing team before they were a winning team. That's the point I'm trying to make to you following along with me. Okay, so so the Romans, they, they liked Smyrna. They liked Smyrna a lot. And Smyrna was like, they, they were like, we're not going to let this go. We're going to make sure that Rome really gets the, how much we love them. So what did they do? They, they ha- went and built a temple to the Caesar Godhead. So they, they built a temple and they didn't, they, that wasn't just good enough. They required every single one of their citizens to come and worship Caesar at least once a year. And here's what you do. You come as a citizen of Smyrna, you would come to Caesar's temple. You would worship Caesar. You would burn uh, incense on Caesar's altar. And when you were done with that, they would issue you a certificate saying, you have worshiped Caesar. You are a good citizen standing in Smyrna. And that may sound like a little benign, but it's not because if you didn't have that certificate, you didn't get to work. You couldn't be a part of the trade guilds. And what's more, if you didn't have that certificate and it didn't have it long enough, well... It was a criminal offense not to worship Caesar, punishable by death. So, this is the church that Jesus is speaking to in Revelation chapter 2. A church that was facing intense persecution for their beliefs. And you might say to yourself, well, you know, weren't there other, you know, Christianity came out of Judaism. What happened to all the Jewish people in Smyrna? Well, the Jewish people actually had an exemption from Rome because the Jewish people were a part of a country that had been conquered by Rome. And when Rome conquered them, they said, we get it. You have your own little religious beliefs. We think they're silly, but you do your thing. We'll go ahead and exempt you from having to worship the emperor because we get that maybe too big for you to do. But the Romans did not like the Christians. The Romans did not like the Christians at all. In fact, one of the things that we hear in Jesus' message to the Smyrnans was that they were being slandered. How are they being slandered? Well, the Romans didn't like the Christians because it was said that they were cannibals. Did you know as a Christian, you're a cannibal? Yeah, yeah. You eat the body and blood of your God. Yeah, I mean, we, we understand those are symbols, right? But... Think about how weird it sounded to a Roman to be like, hey, I'm headed to church today and we're going to have communion where we eat the body and blood of Jesus. And they're like, oh, so you're a bunch of cannibals. Well, no, it's not like that. Let me, and the Roman's like, no, you guys are weird. That's, that, that's cannibals. That's not cool. And the other problem is that they believe that Christians were incestuous. Why did they believe that? Well, 
you know how I say, hey there, family? A little weird to be marrying your brothers and sisters, am I right? And yet that's what's happening in the Christian church, right? Brothers and sisters are marrying each other. Oh, praise the Lord. Brother so-and-so married sister so-and-so. And the Romans are like, oh, no. No, 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 no. We do a lot of weird things, but that is, that is a little past. No, 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 no. No, no. So the Romans are like, okay, you're cannibals. You're incestuous. And maybe worst of all, you're atheists. You're like, wait a minute, Ken. Christians are not atheists. We worship God. Keep in mind, you got to put yourself in the culture and context of the time. The Romans believed in a pantheon of gods. There were many, 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 many gods. And here are these Christians saying, we worship a dead God that was raised to life. And, and you can't see him. And we don't really have a temple. You can worship him anywhere. And they're like, no, you're atheists. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in gods. You're atheists. So the Romans didn't like Christians because they're atheists, they're incestuous, and they're cannibals. Slander. Not true. That's what slander is. It's when you say something that's not true about somebody. And sometimes we, we tend to put assumptions on people, and we don't take the time to really research things. Christians do that too, by the way. Um, and, and so, but these people are being slandered. And the Jewish people were in a little bit of a pickle at that point because they had just had a major insurrection in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so the Romans were like, I don't know. Do we really want to keep that exemption going? And the Jews were like, yes, please, please do. And so at this point, the Christians are being ratted out by their, the Jewish family that they come from, by the Romans around them. And so the people in Smyrna were really suffering because Smyrna was serious about being a good Roman city. And so they were, they were really, really giving a hard time to these poor Smyrna Christians. So what does Jesus do for a church that's suffering? How does Jesus speak to a church that's hurting, that's going through persecution? I really want you to hear how Jesus talks to them. Let's start off with how Jesus first appears to them. See, at the beginning of every one of these letters, Jesus gives a description of himself that that particular church needed to see. So how does Jesus go ahead and describe himself to Smyrna? He says, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. So let's start off with the who is dead and has come to life. Like I said, Jesus really likes to kind of do a little couple winks in Revelation. You know, he's like, get what I'm saying? So thinking about if you were paying attention to the sermon earlier, the one who is dead and has come to life. Remember that? that? Yeah. So everybody in that area was very familiar with what Aristides has said, that Smyrna was a, a, a city that had died and come back to life. And Jesus goes, yeah, been there, done that. Uh, in fact, I did it better. Um, and, so, and so Jesus points out to them that he has died. And so this would be important to talk to people who are facing death. To be like, yeah, I get it. I've done that. I was nailed to a cross. I was nailed to a cross, so I get it. I died, but I've come back to life. And the implication is if I've done it, you can do it too. You can do it too. I understand you. I sympathize with you. I am there with you. This first part, though, is also really interesting. The first and the last. 
it's really easy sometimes when we read the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation, to read it and just kind of run right past it really quick. The first and last. Oh, yeah, God's always been. He always will be. Keep on moving. But what's interesting is that this phrase, the first and the last, only happens two places in the Bible. It happens in the book of Revelation, and it happens in the book of Isaiah. And so the clear implication from this verse is that John and Jesus were wanting the Smyrnans to turn in their Bibles to Isaiah. Why? Because sometimes when you put a little illusion, you can go back to something that fills in all the gaps. So what Jesus, with just these, the first and the last, with those few words, Jesus is about to give them a whole nother sermon. So let's take a look at that whole other sermon. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 10. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. See what Jesus is doing to a persecuted church. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Remember, Jesus is going to say this later on to the church in his message to them. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? So he's reminding them, through your persecution, you're being a witness. By your steadfastness, by standing up for my name, you're witnessing to this city. Is there any other God? There isn't. There is no other rock, not one. How foolish are those who manufacture idols? Those prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship them don't know this. So they're all put to shame. See, this is the issue that they were facing. They were facing idolatry. They were being asked to worship a false God and they refused to do it. And God's saying, good for you. That God can't save you. See what Jesus is doing? Just those few words, Jesus is trying to pull this up. But it goes better than that. In Isaiah 41, again, Jesus identifies, uh, is ident- God is identified there as the first and the last. And then these verses come right after that. You are my servant, for I have chosen you and will not throw you away. When you are suffering, when you are hurting, when you are being persecuted, it is very easy to feel like God has thrown you away. And so Jesus, by saying, I'm the first and the last to Smyrna, he wants them to go there and say, be reminded that that he hasn't thrown them away. Whatever you're suffering through today, whatever you may be going through, you need to be reminded that God has not thrown you away. You are important to God. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. If you feel weak today, know that God wants to come alongside you and strengthen you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. And finally, this in Isaiah chapter 48. God says, listen to me, O family of Jacob, Israel, my chosen one. I alone am God, the first and the last. It was my hand that laid the foundation of the earth, my right hand that spread out the heavens above. When I called out the stars, they all appeared in order. So what's, what's the message here? I'm in control. I started this thing. I promise I'll see it through. Whatever you're going through now, trust me, I've got you. I've got you. Another important thing to notice about what Jesus does with this church that's being persecuted is what he doesn't do. Did you see the layout? You saw how there was, there was different elements? This is one of only two churches out of the seven, one of only two where Jesus has no complaint. Was it because they were a perfect church and they were doing everything well and they had no flaws? I don't think so. I'm going to give you the Ken Wetmore theology here because this is just my opinion. 
I like to qualify that. Maybe they were perfect. Maybe, they, maybe there was absolutely nothing to complain about, but I don't think so because I haven't met anybody like that yet. I certainly haven't met any churches like that yet. Whole life's awesome, but there's some things we could do better. So why doesn't Jesus complain? Why doesn't Jesus say, hey guys, do this? My take is this. Jesus knows they've already got enough on their plate. Maybe we could learn a lesson from him. When people are suffering, maybe that's not the time to pile on. And it's not the time to go, yeah, maybe think about why God is doing this to you. I mean, that's what Job's friends do, and God kind of doesn't like that later on. So if, it's, if Jesus doesn't pile on in people's suffering, maybe we shouldn't either. Jesus has no complaint for this church. Again, not because I think that they're perfect, but because they had enough going on already. You're suffering. Let me speak in another way to you. Jesus doesn't complain. Instead, he says to them, you know, I know you think you're really poor right now, but the fact is that you're rich. Family, sometimes we really try to run from tribulation, from hurt and persecution. And Jesus says, you know, sometimes that's what makes you rich. Sometimes it's those experiences that really make you rich. And when I think back on my life and I think through some of the hard times that I have begged God to get me out of as quick as possible, I look back on them and I see how God has grown me and stretched me. And if you're going through a hard time right now, maybe you want to plug your ears a little bit on that. I don't know because I don't want to diminish the suffering and hurt you're going through because I don't. It's hard. And you don't always want to hear you're rich. But Jesus actually says it to a persecuted church. He wants to remind them that even though they think that they're poor, they're really rich because they have what really matters. They have him. They're holding on to him with all dear, for dear life. And it's funny that the church in Laodicea that we're going to come to at the end, they're rich, and Jesus says, but you're poor. Jesus has some words. He wants us to know and understand that persecution isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. So another item here is he encourages them Every church is, they're told to, there's, there's a, a complaint in some case. This case, this, there wasn't. There's also always a, hey, do this. And in their case, he says, don't be afraid. And can we just say for a moment, look what comes after that. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. <laughs> Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will be have tribulation for 10 days, be faithful unto death. The implication is that some of you are going to die. But it starts off with do not fear. Why would we not fear? If you're told that you're going to be tortured, that you're going to be hurt, that you may die a martyr's death, why would God say don't be afraid? Because generally fear comes when you don't know what's going to happen at the end. Because usually when I know what's going to happen, I can move it past it. What do I mean by that? Well, I got to tell you, if you know how the game ends, if you're watching a game, a sports game, and you know how it ends, if an interception's thrown, if there's a turnover, if your team gets down by 40 points, and you know you won in the end, you're like, well, this is just a setback. I know how it ends. And so Jesus is saying you don't have to be afraid. Not, he's not rebuking them for me. Don't, don't be afraid. You know how it ends. I'm giving you the ending 
of the story. So you don't have to be afraid about how it's going to turn out. Don't be afraid. Trust me. What is this 10 days thing in there? Well, the 10 days thing in there is something that theologians will debate about because the theologians love to debate. Um, and, but I want to kind of give you a quick look at that 10 days idea. There are a couple different theories out there. The one theory is that it's 10 literal days. So for 10 days, they're going to experience severe tribulation. There's no evidence in the story of Smyrna at the time of John that there was 10 days of severe perseverance during that time period. Another theory is what we call in, uh, in prophetic circles the day for a year principle. This is where one day equals one prophetic year. And so maybe they're going to be persecuted for 10 years. The problem with that theory is that, that, that there is persecution that happens in the Roman Empire for a 10-year period. It happens before this letter is sent. There's also uh, a 10-year period where uh, stuff happens after this letter is sent two to 300 years after this letter is sent. So for this church, what's Jesus trying to say to them? There's going to be 10 years of persecution. What Jesus is saying to the people in Smyrna when this letter arrived to them is, there is going to be some persecution, but there is an end to it. By giving a number to it, he's saying it's not, in, it's not forever. It's, it's, it'll happen for a little bit, but then it will be over. You kind of need to hear that when you're going through something hard, Right? You need to be like, well, this, this is just temporary. And if it's just temporary, then I can get through that. Then I can get through it. And so Jesus is saying, look, friends, family in Smyrna, this is temporary. Whatever you're going through right now, family, it's temporary. It's not easy, but it's temporary. And finally, Jesus says, I will give you a crown of life. Again, Jesus is doing a little wink. Why? Because the Smyrnans would have understood what Jesus was getting at here. He was making allusion to their city because they had a large hill in the center of their city that had stately buildings that went around it. And so many people commented that it was that Smyrna was the crown of Asia Minor because of the way that city looked with the, and surrounded by the buildings around it. So this was kind of a common phrase. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to give you a crown, he's saying, hey, there's that temporary thing in the middle of your city, right? But guess what? I'm going to give you a crown of life. I'm going to give you a crown of life. To, I am the real crown. And it wasn't just any kind of crown. There are two different words for crown in the Greek language that this was written in. And the first one was like a diadem. It's, the, it's a crown that a king or a queen would wear. The second one was the one that you see up on the screen. It's, it's the laurels that are given to somebody who wins a battle or wins an athletic contest. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you, you're a victor. You overcame and I'm going to crown you with this crown that says you're a victor. And by the way, it's not a crown that will ever go away. It is a eternal crown. It is a crown that will last forever. That unlike the laurels that will decompose because they're organic, I am going to give you a crown that will absolutely last forever when you are victorious, when you get through this time of persecution. And finally, Jesus appeals to them to hear the Spirit. He says, the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is important to a group of people who are facing martyrdom. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know how I died and was raised to life? The same thing's going to happen for you. 
And here's the thing. You don't have to be afraid of the second death, which is eternal separation from God, as we'll find out later in Revelation. You don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid of dying forever because the second death will have no power to hurt you when you overcome. And that's the good news. The good news is whatever they do to you here doesn't last. What will last is eternity. And I have the power to give that to you. So family, what can we, I told you at the beginning, location plays a lot into what you think about. Probably most of you have not spent a whole lot of time thinking about the persecuted church in the last couple months. But I want you to know that there are people around the world who are thinking about it. According to a January 17, 2023 article in Christianity Today, over 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes. 15,000 Christians became refugees. This is something that happens in our world today. There are people that are a part of a persecuted, suffering church. And we need to be aware of that, even in spite of our location. You didn't like it very well when I said I was in Washington State and couldn't have cared less what happened in Florida as you shouldn't. It's a rude thing to say. We should care about those who are suffering around the world, who are suffering for their faith. We should care about that. It should be on our mind. The other part is that we should not be afraid to suffer for the right reasons for our faith. Standing up for what's right matters. As a church, if it means standing up for what Jesus believes in and what his call is in our life, I'd like to think we'd be willing to suffer poverty and even the giving up of our own lives. It's a tall order, but Jesus commends this church for being willing to do it. How can you make a difference? I remember when I was on Guam, over a thousand people from Myanmar came to uh, Guam. They were fortunate enough to be able to figure out a way to get onto Guam, U.S. territory, and they were hoping the U.S. courts would allow them to seek asylum. Most of them were there for political and uh, religious persecution. Several years later, I had the opportunity to interview the last one whose case had not been adjudicated, the one who had been stuck in the courts, the last, the last Burmese person on Guam. And he happened to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And I was called up by a wonderful Christian aid organization, not Seventh-day Adventist, that was representing him in the court system, fighting, fighting to give him a home here in the United States. Because what was happening was the, the U.S. was wanting to ship him back to the country he came from, the place where he had watched his best friend be killed because of his faith, the place where he had experienced his own personal persecution and pain. Family, we can care about what's happening in the world and we can say, hey, it matters. We need to go ahead and open our doors to people that need a safe place to be. We need to care about that kind of thing and we need to do what we can to make it. I'm happy to say that the court system prevailed in his case and he is today here in the United States enjoying the religious freedom that you and I get to enjoy. But family, let's go ahead and take it one step further. If we as Christians want to enjoy religious freedom, don't we owe it to give that same freedom to those who don't believe the same way that we do as well? Don't we owe it to do what Jesus said, to, to do unto others as you would have done to you? Don't we owe it to the Hindu, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the atheist, to respect them and not persecute them for their beliefs? 
if we in fact want that for ourselves as well. That's what you can take home today. Think about that. How can we treat people the way that we would want to be treated here in this country? Here's the beautiful thing that I'm gonna close with. Like myrrh, Jesus is that sweet smell of comfort and suffering. Jesus provides relief from our pain. When we suffer, Jesus reminds us that he is there with us, that he understands that this is temporary, that just as he was resurrected, someday we too will be resurrected to eternal life. Ken, thank you so much for that sermon. You know, the second time around was even better. There's just so much to unpack there in, the, in that sermon. So thank you for all the historical tidbits. That, it's interesting just how that different perspective of that information about how things that they had gone through that maybe none of us would have even thought of was, was a message there for them. It's so great to see how God always remembers. And he knows what we've been through and he knows what to say to help us remember what we've learned, right? Absolutely. Uh, we have a, a question here from Lynn, and she says, I feel so many Christians go through persecution in a way that's not appealing to unbelievers. Do you think there's a graceful way that Christians should handle persecution, or does that matter? Oh, I'm, I'll just second what you said, Lynn. I definitely think that um, the way that we go through persecution speaks a lot to the world that's watching. You know, if... Um, if we are um, mean and angry as we go through, as we're lashing out at the people that are persecuting us, if we're doing that, then that tells the world that we're not that different than anybody else. And we should probably be reminded of what Jesus said as he was being nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We have another question that came in from Aaron, and she says, I'm pretty good at right." external behavior or going through the actions or words to show love or care for others. But many times I don't feel it inside. I'm thinking as a Christian, love for others should be real feeling, right? Not just, not just motions. How do I get the real thing coming from my heart for others? So love is something that we can feel, and it can be an emotion, but more importantly, it's a choice. Um, and if love isn't a choice that we have, and love being, when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, okay? If, if love is something that we only do when we feel it, then we've got some big problems, because I can feel quite certain, going back to Christ on the cross, that he wasn't feeling particularly great in that moment. And that maybe that feeling of, you know, lovey-dovey, whatever. And I think sometimes in Christianity, we really push the emotional side of Christianity to the point that we forget that, that there is a choice involved as well, a choice to be loving, a choice to keep on loving when it's hard. And so my encouragement to you is, if you're not feeling it, that's okay. It's okay. Just keep being loving. And from my experience, the, the feeling catches up with that at the right time. But um, I sometimes think we don't know what we're expecting love to feel like. And sometimes love feels like just doing the right thing and being like, you know, that, that was hard. So 
Um, just my encouragement to you, I know, I know that feeling because I often be like, man, I, I don't really feel this right now. And I think that's the time when God's challenging me the hardest to keep on being loving when I'm not feeling it. So how do we learn to love those who have done us wrong? How can we move forward in our lives and forgive them? Practice. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, I guess what I have to say about it. It's, it's, it's trying, failing, asking God to continue to help, continue to grow you. I look back on my life and I think all the ways I've failed people, I haven't been loving, I haven't been kind and all that. And I can, I can go ahead and obsess about that and wish that I was a better person or I can say I am going to be a better person as I allow God to shape me and grow me and chisel away those rough point parts. And that, that place where I failed was just one of those places where God was knocking off a piece of the stone that didn't need to be there in my life. And it was painful and it hurt, but I've learned, I've grown, and I'm going to continue to allow God to transform me into the creation that he wants me to be. Well, thank you, Ken, so much. I look forward to hearing your podcast this weekend, uh, uh, this week, to hear the rest of the questions that uh, are going to be, that have been submitted here that we didn't have no, time to cover. we had some cover. good ones from First Service, yes, too. Yes, we do. So we'll we talk do, some so. more. I have one that I have to come back to. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, be sure to tune into that. Thank you, Haas. I appreciate you. All right, family. Thank you for uh, being a part of the whole life family, a church without walls. We are not this building. You are the church. Thank you for being that. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for loving us, even when I'm sure you don't feel like loving us. We thank you that you are the God that is with us in our suffering, that you haven't thrown us away, but that you are there with us, that we are in the powerful grip of your hand. For those who are suffering today, Lord, I pray that they got encouragement. They're encouraged to take that next step forward, one step at a time. For those of us who are fortunate enough to not be experiencing severe persecution, Lord, help us to be grateful for that, but also help us to use that to effectively spread the good news about you. Help us to, to not just take it for granted and to not care about the fact that it is happening to others around the world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, family. I love you. Go love your world. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church, and our podcasts are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians. All focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407 965 1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. 
and plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening and have a great week.